Welcome to The Bid, where we break down what's happening in the markets and explore the forces changing the economy and finance. I'm your host, Mark Weidman. Today, we are going to India. You know that India has the biggest population in the world, but what you probably don't know is that India is leading the world in digital payments. The man inspiring this leap forward is Nandan Nilakani. He is the co-founder of Infosys, the digital services firm. And for 14 years, he's dedicated himself to the digital transformation of India. I met with Nandan in Mumbai this year and invited him to share his story at our new Hudson Yards office in New York. In this episode, you'll hear about how Nandan landed the job to create this digital ID system, why India has been able to leapfrog technologies, and how building a digital public infrastructure has brought a new model of economic growth to India. Welcome, Nandan. Thank you for having me here. The building out of Infosys, what was the founding vision and what is it today? Well, the idea of Infosys was to create a globally respected technology company. And it took us a long time because we began in 1981. And that was in India, that was very different. There was no economic reforms. It was difficult to do business. But come the 90s, when India had the first wave of liberalization, we were able to grow very rapidly. And we set many, many records. We were the first Indian company to list in the US. We listed the NASDAQ in 99. We were among the first to deal with foreign investors. So we introduced a lot of cutting-edge reforms in the way capital markets work in India and set the bar for corporate governance and so on. And we have 1,700 clients around the world. And it's been a very successful 40-year journey. What was your contribution as a leader for the many years you were with Infosys full-time? Well, I was primarily on the business side. I was looking at global sales, global marketing, and I was also the CEO for five years from 2002 to 2007. So we get into the mid 2000s, you're CEO. Take us on your personal journey from there to when you started embarking on the transformation of your country. So I stepped down as CEO, I was the co-chairman. I also wrote a book in 2008 called Imagining India. It's a broad sweeping book about many ideas, why urbanization didn't happen, why education didn't happen, why something else happened and so on. And one of the ideas was let's also look at having digital ID and use technology to make a difference. So that was embedded in that book somewhere. And then I got a call from Prime Minister Manmohan Singh to implement this idea. And he said, we have this project for giving everybody an ID. At that time, it was not a digital ID, it was just an ID. It had to be unique. And unique meant that Mark gets only one number in the system. And why did we need this ID? The two reasons. First was, India was building its welfare state and was going to be sending money to people and wanted to make sure it reached the right person because without an ID, you can't do that. The second reason was that India didn't really have a very robust birth registration system in those days. And many births were not registered because the birth happened in the village out far away from the district. You couldn't get a birth certificate. So in some states, more than half the babies born did not have birth certificates. Again, that did not matter when they lived their entire life in the village. But the moment they started migrating, without ID, they couldn't get anything done. They couldn't board a train, they couldn't get a job, they couldn't open a bank account, they couldn't explain to the cop who stopped them. So ID became an essential asset for people. So both the inclusion of getting everybody into an ID system and the efficiency of giving money directly to them drove the government to think of the ID project. It had actually begun 
conceptually in 2006, but by the time I came on the scene, 2009, it was ready to roll and I stepped into that job. So that was the genesis, the birth moment. What was the founding set of actions you took in 2009? So I brought a bunch of very good bureaucrats from the permanent bureaucracy, but I also needed deep technology. I built a bunch of technologies from all over the world who all volunteered to make this happen. And then I brought this group together and they were from two different cultures. So I didn't want internecine warfare. So I set such an audacious goal that they forgot about their differences and focused on the job. And your big audacious goal was what? I'll just take one intervening point. I served in the government from 2009 to 2014. And when I began my term, I had made a public statement that I would deliver 600 million IDs and then stepped down, which I did. So zero in 2009, 600 million by 2014. When was your first ID issued? September 30th, 2010. Peak was one and a half million a day. I think something the, particularly the US audience might not fully appreciate is that when you started, you had a huge portion of the population that had no formal, other than the voting booth, had no real actual status in the eyes of the yeah, government. Exactly, because the lack of birth certificates. In the US, maybe 98% of births are registered. So a birth certificate becomes your root document based on which right. you vote or whatever, decide your age. But if you don't have a root document, then how do you take a few hundred million people and give them an ID when they have no ID? That was the challenge we had. And the only way we could do that was a very complicated technological thing called biometric deduplication where we took each person who enrolled and compared them to all the people we had in the database to see whether the person was a duplicate or not. So if you had 500 million people in the database and a million people enrolled, we'll do 500 trillion matches every day to eliminate duplicates, a very sophisticated technology-wise. But the politics was more difficult than the technology. India is famously decentralized. So getting all those individual states to sign up, how did you get it done? First of all, I made it non-threatening. Because what happens in any organization and in the government is if we come with a new idea, everybody said, what does it do to me? So I had to prove to people that this was not in any way affecting anybody. All I was saying, John is John, Ashok is Ashok, Mohammed is Mohammed. Whether John deserves a passport, the passport guard will decide. Whether John deserves a driver's license. So I said, I'm not taking away your power or agency. I'm just helping you do your job better. So the moment you position this as something enabling them to do their job better, and you don't take away any of their power, they are fine with it. So I had to do that with all these players. So you get to 600 million, where yeah. are we today? Now we are at 1.3 billion, people have the ID. So right now 1.3 billion Indians have the ID. How do they use the ID? What are the applications? They, they use it in two ways. They use it to authenticate themselves. So wherever they have to prove who they are, they can do an online identification, verification. And that does about 80 million transactions a day. And you can also use that to do what's called as a know your customer. It's called electronic KYC. And it's used to get a new mobile connection or to open a new bank account and so on. And that is about five to seven million a day. One of the big use cases is what we call as micro ATMs is how do you get people to be able to withdraw money easily from the bank account? In the old model, you have to go all the way to the city, to the branch, or you have to go to an expensive ATM. A micro ATM is nothing but a small mobile phone, smartphone with a, maybe a face auth on it. That is there with people around the country in grocery stores and so on. And if I want to withdraw money from my bank account, I just go to the neighborhood grocery store, authenticate that I am X, 
and I want to withdraw 500 rupees from a bank account and he gives you 500 from his drawer and on the system your account gets debited and his account gets credited so it's all settled. So he becomes an ATM, a mandate and now we have a few hundred thousand of these micro ATMs around. So suddenly you're made cash in cash out accessible to a billion people. So that's an example. Okay, so 2014 rolls along and shockingly you've hit 600 million. You step down, what did you decide to do then? Well, then I also had a small detour and I stood for election and I lost the election. Okay, why was this crazy guy standing for election? So I felt I want to get more things done and I thought if I'm inside the system as a politician, I can get more things done. That was my flawed logic anyway. So that didn't work. That was almost nine years ago yeah. when you stepped down, went for the by-election for the world. May not have been great for you, but the election results were great for the universe because you took on your next chapter. What was the next chapter and how did you continue? Around that time, in the ID days, I built the direct benefit transfer platform with the NPCI, which is the National Payment Corporation of India, which is a nonprofit that does all payments in India. So I knew them very well and we started thinking about how to do a real-time mobile payment system. And that's what led to a new product we designed in 2013 called UPI, Unified Payment Interface. And this is where the world actually starts to pay attention. We designed a payment system, real-time payments, small value, small transaction fee, between any bank account to any bank account, from any consumer app to any consumer app. So this is what you call as a four-party system. For example, I'm using Google and my bank account is State Bank of India, you're using PhonePay, you're banking on HDFC Bank, you can seamlessly transact. So this was ahead of the curve in terms of thinking through how payment should be done. And we launched that in May of 2016 with the idea to create this kind of payment system. Before we go to the astounding results, what was the core intellectual architecture connecting the unique ID to payments that you were able to unlock and create that system launching at 16? Unique ID not only gave ID, it gave electronic KYC. Electronic KYC reduced customer acquisition costs for newcomers in markets like banking and mobile phones. So essentially, KYC reduced costs of customer acquisition and therefore allowed newcomers to come and compete in markets. Then we felt that unless we make payments ubiquitous and cheap, you can't really create a transaction economy. When you say that, what's a non-transaction economy? What do you mean? The way the West evolved the internet was it was an advertising-led economy. Because in the US, you spend $700 per person on advertising. And then that money was earlier spent on television and print. So what happened was that money migrated to the internet with digital advertising with all the big tech companies. In India, there's no money in advertising because people don't have that money to spend. So we said, if you really want to create a flourishing internet economy, it has to be based on transactions. But then to make a transaction economy, you need to make them very efficient, low cost, and very small value. So that led us to the conclusion that you need a, a very fast real-time payment system. So the founding vision was if we're going to make the internet a reality in Indian lives, we're going to actually need to create a real-time digital payment system because without it, we'll just never get there and the internet will pass us by. So you launched in May 2016. What did it allow somebody to do? It allowed somebody to make payments from any app to any app from any bank account but it was a very small scale we wanted to tackle person to person payments and person to merchant payments by october of 2016 we were doing a hundred thousand transactions a month okay so the vision is basically exploding this level of transactions directly hundred thousand in october 16 then what happens then in the month of november on november 8 2016 
India demonetizes its currency. Essentially, it withdrew currency notes from the economy and said, we'll put in new currency notes. But there was an uproar everywhere. They're taking away the currency. Some people thought it was a bungled rollout, but it actually created a catalyst moment for you. Yes, because it suddenly people said, can we do digital payments? And fortunately, we had something to do digital payments. And that's how the Beam application was launched by the prime minister. And then, of course, all these other applications came. And so basically, the payment boom were driven by two things. One was the demonetization stuff, and the second was COVID. Because COVID, again, gave a big boost to contactless payments. So both these things gave the tailwinds for the growth of digital payments. Where are we today in digital payments in today India? Today we have, last month was 8.7 billion digital payments. Uh, 300 million people use it. And 50 million merchants have QR codes at which you can make these payments. So you walk into a small shop, a Karana, there will be a little QR thing. I mean, a guy on the street selling coconuts will have the QR code on his cycle. He'll give you a coconut, top it out there, and you make the payment. So in New York, sometimes on the street, the vendors, they don't have a way of taking digital payments. You're saying basically anywhere except for maybe a deep, deep, deep farmland, yeah. that person will be prepared to take a digital payment. How is that changing people's lives? Well, it's increasing their efficiency. They're doing more transactions. It's increasing the safety because if you're a woman selling vegetables on the street, if you take only cash, by the end of the day, you have lots of cash and then you're vulnerable to extortion or theft. Now it's all gone into the bank account. She doesn't have to go and deposit the money. It's already in the bank account. And they have also come with new innovations. For one is the payment speaks, the sound box. Important because if I'm running, you know, we have India, these restaurants where they make everything, dosas and whatnot. And he has no time to give the dosa and take the money and give the change. Now he has a small audio box there with a QR code. So he gives the dosa and tells the guy to go there. He goes there, pays, and the sound box says received 75 rupees. So he's using his audio hearing so he can deliver more dosa. His hands are free with no payments required. Millions of shops where they have these devices. Lots of innovations. So India today, where is it going to be in five years regarding this ecosystem you're creating? Well, first of all, you're going to have financial inclusion with everybody having a bank account. With mobile prices dropping, mobiles are going to be, be ubiquitous. Everybody already has the ID. UPI is expected to go to 1 billion transactions a day from about 300 million now. We think we are halfway on this digital transformation journey. So there are three, four big ideas that are in the works. The first is democratizing credit because we think that if people can be empowered with their own data then they can use it to improve their lives so if a small business can use his bank details or his tax payment details or whatever and securely give to a lender and get credit then he's using his information collateral to get credit so we think that will democratize credit to millions and millions of businesses who didn't get access to credit so that's going to lead to broad-based economic growth because small businesses can now get access to credit. So that's the one big idea. When but, you look around the world, where else do you see innovation around ID and payments? Like this? Nowhere. I think that, for example, Brazil has a very good payment system called PIX, which has done extremely well, but it's only within the banks. I met the governor recently, yeah. and I think it's a great job. It's a bank-to-bank, real-time payment system that does high-volume transactions. What's interesting is in Brazil, they started off the payment system because you have people in the flavelas 
who are very poor, much more dangerous than Indian equivalents, who were being mugged and have all their cash taken. And so you had the urgency of getting cash out of the hands of a single woman or man walking home from his job and actually into the computer systems. Even though you can obviously still, there are ways of getting money from people, it's much harder. That's right. So that same innovation. Why have we not seen this level of innovation in the West? So actually a broader point, which is interestingly, countries that come later to technology can leapfrog. This is real leapfrogging. It's somebody who's leapfrogged in a couple of ways already in your career. You've leapfrogged technologies more than once. So we did well with ID, we did that with payments. We are doing that with democratizing credit and putting data in the hands of people. We're building a new infrastructure for open digital commerce, which allows everyone to join a grid of payments and grid of commerce. So any small shop can become a supplier on this. So it's going to lead to a lot of hyper-local commerce. Unlike in the West, where you have only large organized trade or you have e-commerce, India has millions and millions of small businesses, which is common, by the way, in many countries. So how do these small millions of small guys, how do they participate in e-commerce? So we're creating the pipes for that. And then we are also doing a lot of work on logistical improvements because India was a single market for service because of the fact that our telecom banking regulations are national. So it's a single market for services, but it was a fractured market for goods. So now with the government of India reforms in GST, putting in a single tax system, making all tax payments, digital road tolling, all that stuff, but much better version, making the markets more efficient, creating a single market for products and services, enabling millions of small businesses to participate in commerce. And the basic thesis, Mark, is if the world is going to be a digitally intensive economy, the architecture of that is very important. What would be your message to us, all of the listeners here around the world, about how to bring the kind of thinking and innovation you've brought to India to the rest of the world? Well, I think now we call all these things, we call them as digital public infrastructure. And we think that this is an idea whose time has come. We are happy to see that many countries are saying we want to adopt some of this around the world. We think there'll be about 50 countries who are looking at some, not the whole thing we did because that's quite big, but you know, pieces of this, like ID. Philippines is implementing an ID similar to this. Morocco is implementing an ID. Some people are looking at payments. So I think you will see countries saying, oh, look, this seems to be a way of doing things which will actually benefit us. I mean, to go back to my point, the pandemic showed us that our lives were digitally intense. We were entwined. We ordered our goods online. We ordered our food online. We did our learning online. We had our meetings online. We had our relationships online. So if an economy and society is going to be so heavily entwined with digital stuff, you have to think of the architecture of that in a way that you have more economic growth. So our whole thesis is that actually a new model of economic growth, which is more democratic, more inclusive, and which is better for society. I think this is a great time to be doing these things. I think we have seen that you can bring massive change if you want to, and anybody can do it. It's not the privilege of a few. So I think every one of these people here can change the world. You know, Nandan, it is a time in which ideas have a potential to reach scale like never before in human history. That's right. Nandan Nilakani, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Omar.
This material is intended for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice, a recommendation or an offer or solicitation to purchase or sell any securities, funds or strategies to any person in any jurisdiction in which an offer, solicitation, purchase or sale would be unlawful under the securities laws of such jurisdiction. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change without notice. Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion of the listener. Investing involves risks. BlackRock does and may seek to do business with companies covered in this podcast. As a result, listeners should be aware that the firm may have a conflict of interest that could affect the objectivity of this podcast. For more information, visit blackrock.com forward slash the bid.